0: ocean advocate is Kaikea Nakachi. Kaikea is a biological oceanographer working to get sharks the respect they deserve in regards to their importance in Hawaiian culture and the overall health of the ocean. Hi, Kaikea, Welcome to the show. Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you today. It's been a while since we've been able to catch up. Yeah, it'll be good to catch up. So uh, to give our listeners some background, Kaikea and I actually went to college together at Florida Institute of Technology. We were on the swim team there together, so we had a lot of great memories and great experiences on the swim team together. Kaikea studied biological oceanography there and since graduation has done some really incredible things and I'm super excited to hear about a lot of them. Shortly after graduating Kaike, you started doing some work actually with the Nature Conservancy. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got involved with the Nature Conservancy and what you've collaborated with them on? Yeah,
1: sure. Well, it was, uh, I guess it started still while I was at Florida Tech. As you know, for the KMLAC, the Kaupalehu Marine Life Advisory Committee, they've been working on trying to set certain sustainable fisheries for about 10, 20 years now, and only recently have they gotten the necessary research and people working together to start steamrolling on actually getting legislation involved. And that's when they started having meetings and started working on their conservation action plan. So some of those meetings, when I was home, I was able to go and work with them. And then that's when I met Chad Wiggins, who on the Big Island works for TNC, and sort of in charge of the Big Island branch. And uh, I got to work with him and other TNC members and just got, got real tight with them. And, you know, they got a great message and they do great work working with the Kupuna, you know, the local people, working with all the aunties that have that cultural knowledge. And just being able to listen and uh, implement things for the people was just really great. So that's when I got to know them and uh, eventually, through the Polynesian Voyaging Society and the Nature Conservancy teaming up, I was able to go on the, uh, the Hikianalia, the sister ship of Hokulea, up to the Northwest Hawaiian Islands just for a small 10-day voyage. But I mean, that was dream come true for me. And that kind of started my uh, relationship with TNC. And since then, we've been you know sharing ideas and helping each other out. And one of those things was... One of our boats, our family boats, we've been letting them use that for some of their fish and coral research and surveys that they've been doing on West Hawaii and that they do across the state. So, you know, every every bit of help that we can give as community members, they gladly accept. It was really big, especially last year when I started working with them because Hawaii had its worst bleaching event ever in history, especially West Hawaii. So that kind of just made that relationship more important just because the situation was urgent you know we wanted to get those surveys done before the bleaching really took hold so we could have a baseline and uh, eventually I'm sure this summer we'll start to do some follow-up surveys of all those same sites in West Hawaii.
0: And so you did a lot of coral bleaching surveys with them before and during and after this really large coral Mm -hmm. bleaching event that's occurring and you also have worked with them a little bit to propose a 10-year no-take marine reserve yeah, that's um, in Hawaii. Yeah. yeah, can you talk a little bit about how that came about and maybe what stage that's at right now? Because that would be an awesome victory yeah. for the ocean if that could take place. Sure.
1: So uh, the KMLAC, as it's called, the Kau and Kopulehu refers to uh, an area in Ahupua'a on the west side of Hawaii. And basically an ahupua'a is just like a pie-sized chunk of land that goes from the wide coast and up to a point on a mountain. And uh, that's how they divided the land Uh, in ancient Hawaii. And Kaupalehu is a particular area in what they call the kaha lands, the dry lands. So not much grows there. It's really barren, but it's very important coastally because it's a shoal area. So it's very shallow out, you know, for a mile or two which is pretty uncommon in, in Hawaii usually we get dramatic slopes where you can be half a mile offshore and already in a thousand feet of water so that shoal area is very important for all the marine life and basically the lineal descendants of that area have kind of gotten together and agreed that through the course of Hawaiian history that that area has become very important to Hawaiians for fishing and for all other native customary gathering techniques and just traditions. And ever since 1975, when the main highway along the road opened up, it's just been uh, open to the public, to other Hawaiians, to other residents of Hawaii to go ahead and take. It's just unfortunate because Hawaii does not require a fishing license of any sort. So anyone from anywhere visiting or, or resident can go ahead and fish. And the few things they do have, you know, lobster seasons or such, even though seasons are unregulated. So if it's lobster season, you can go ahead and take however much lobster you want from wherever you want. So a particularly plentiful area like that of Kau Pulehu just got taken out from so many people going and loading up coolers and coolers of fish and uh, the lineal descendants just had enough of witnessing over 30 40 years that dramatic decline of fish and and resources that they just got together and started working on ways that they could not only you know limit the amount of take but return to their tradition of a sustainable fishery one of the things I take the most pride in of the Hawaiian traditions were that they were very sustainable. They always made sure that there were enough fish for the next generation. They, were, they set kapus, which were you know, no take of certain fish during certain parts of the year, and, and only certain people could eat certain fish. So the lineal descendants of the time sort of got together and, and wanted to you know, restart that traditional practice. And one of those practices is a rest period. And I think originally they wanted it for a lot longer than 10 years. When you look at some of the fish trying to recover in just 10 years, it's, you know, you need more time than that. But just having people limit their fishing is hard enough job, you know, there's going to be a lot of opposition. So basically, we've had informational hearings and we've had pamphlets and people have tried their best to educate people that visit the area, you know, especially the lineal descendant. Them and their families have lived there for hundreds of years to just educate the people. And, and finally, they've, you know, got enough momentum and got enough information out there that we've had a our first official public hearing just this year and are hoping to push that legislation through now. So they're kind of going through amendments and stuff before actually pushing it through to the the board of land and natural resources and and other things to get legislation through so we're really hoping that it goes through for that certain chunk of coast for 10 years just to let all the fish and and other marine creatures to recover from this intense harvest and then during that 10 year period to conduct more research to see how they're recovering and then implement like a community based management to allow us to eventually see, oh, well, this particular fish species is doing well, you know, you can harvest in this certain number, and, you know, this particular fish species is not doing very well, so we're going to refrain from harvesting and let it recover some more. So, you know, that's sort of part of it that's being amended and being looked at, but uh, we're very hopeful that we can get something going and get that into legislation soon.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me that these Hawaiian lineal descendants seem to really know what's necessary, you know, um, they've been doing this and their ancestors have been doing this for generations, actually protecting the ocean in a way that it can sustain life for a long time. And it seems like modern times have not listened and caught up with that, yeah. that philosophy. So it's great that potentially they're going to kind of fuse together and those sorts of ideals of sustainable fisheries will be adopted.
1: It's strange to see that shift of attitude from traditional Hawaiian to the modern Hawaiian, where a lot of people, I think, feel threatened by the dwindling resources and the competition between different fishing techniques and residents and visitors and commercial and recreational fishing. And so you you get people saying, oh, well, it's, it's my right to take, it's my right to fish, when they completely overlook that before that is their right to protect and to conserve. And I think that's what we really want to try and get back to is that mindset and that goal of protecting before taking. And I think this is a really good step to get back to that mindset and to inspire other places to do the same.
0: That's really well said. So to to move on to what you've worked on since working with the Nature Conservancy, or in addition to working with the Nature Conservancy, you've also done a little bit of work with Conservation International, Mm -hmm. um, which is another really influential conservation organization. And you... We're doing some whale shark tagging with them, which sounds like the most fun thing ever. Can you talk a little bit about that trip that you got to go on with them and what that research was all about? Yeah,
1: well, that was a, a lot of fun. I mean, I've gotten to meet a lot of really cool and interesting people working on the water and particularly there at Kau Pulehu and And I am really close with one of the board members of Conservation International. And that family just helped set up that trip and got the tags and talked to Dr. Mark Erdman, who's one of the lead scientists there at Conservation International and does a lot of work there in in Indonesia and and set that trip up. And luckily, I was able to go and, and be a part of it. And it was just awesome. I saw my first whale shark when I was nine here in Hawaii, but they're pretty rare. You hardly ever see them. And they're usually smaller, 20, 25 foot males. So being able to go there and just to see... I think at one point we had four or five all feeding. I mean, that was unreal to me. And then uh, to actually be able to tag, you know, the largest shark and fish species in the world was was so much fun.
0: And so what was the purpose of tagging those whale sharks? What research will come out of that?
1: Okay, so uh, Dr. Mark Erdman and a few of his colleagues there in Indonesia have tagged a few already. And uh, they have only discovered whale sharks in the bay there at Bay in West Papua. I think it was 2006, so it's barely been known that the sharks have been there. And they exhibit real unique behavior of feeding and tail standing at these local fishing boats that no one's really seen before. And that amount of sharks in that particular bay was just unheard of. So I think they want to see what they do in and out of the bay And so far that they've seen a few sharks go out of the bay, but they just have come right back. So figuring out where they go and what they do is really important, especially, I think, the one female they have tagged is uh, super important. And while we were there, we were only at the site for two days. Even then, we saw five whale sharks and were able to tag them, and two of them were actually already tagged. So we were able to recapture the shark, take the tag off, download all the data, and reattach the tag. So Dr. Mark Erdman was real, real happy about that and told us that it was probably the first fin-mounted satellite tag that was ever recaptured, recovered, and then put back into the field. So that was pretty awesome. And already those sharks that we tagged have been giving us some cool data around Chenderwasi Bay, I think before we tagged one of them as it had headed to our site where we caught it, it actually dove all the way down to the bottom of the bay. I think it was maybe 1200 meters. It was pretty deep. And I think that might be the deepest the whale sharks ever been recorded diving. You know, just the amount of tags you can get out there, the more chances you get of seeing cool behaviors like that and just finding out where they go. No one really knows where the big females go, how they mate, and where they pop. So I think this was a good way to get more information on the whale shark, and I was just happy to be a part of it.
0: It's crazy that this is the largest fish in the ocean and the largest shark in the ocean, and we really know so little about it. So that's great that you've been able to be a part of some really cutting-edge research regarding the whale sharks, and hopefully you and the people that you worked with will be able to get some really great information out of that in the fall you're actually going to grad school and in the meantime you've been working with your family's business moana ohana as a dive guide and boat captain and like i said in the fall you will be attending university of hawaii at hilo Mm -hmm. under a really amazing scholarship definitely well deserved um do you want to talk about what your research at hilo will be about sure
1: so uh The program at UH Hilo is TCBES, which stands for Tropical Conservation Biology and Environmental Sciences. So it's a super uh, wide field that encompasses pretty much everything there is in, in biology in Hawaii. I mean, they have native plants and insects and mammals, and they're real heavy on the marine sciences as well. And that's mostly what I'll be looking at. One of the main advantages of going to UH Hilo is that they're very heavily oriented on Hawaiian culture. Part of my goal was to look at tiger sharks and particularly be able to bring together that Hawaiian culture and Western science. So there's a lot of information that's been passed down just from word of mouth about sharks, particularly tiger shark. And I've done my own research here and there, you know, as I've been diving with them, throughout my life and eventually I've just found out there's so much more to learn and there's so much western science you know doesn't really address in their approach and I think bringing the two together will be a real interesting mix. Basically I just throughout my life I've been saw my first tiger shark at 10 and every time I take pictures or video of them I just sort of stored it and haven't really done much with it. And only recently have I started to organize it and really put it together into a real database and have since found out that I've seen over 50 female tiger sharks and over 10 male tiger sharks, which as far as I know is much more than any other scientist that has a database of tiger sharks. So that sort of brought to my attention that I have, you know, should do something with this and eventually talking with Kapuna and and other people here in in Hawaii have just got the idea of making a database, but bringing that Hawaiian side in. So this might be hard to explain really in, in a short time, but I'll do my best. The shark that brought Pele over from Tahiti to Hawaii had a name. And since then, in the hundreds of years that Hawaii has been around, sharks have been given particular names. Just like the chiefs on land had names, the sharks were the chiefs of the ocean. And they had their own Hawaiian names. And uh, basically in my database, I would like to give the proper names to these sharks. So I'll be working closely with Kapuna and other Hawaiians who have that information from their ancestors of, of their names and the different melees and chants and songs that the Hawaiians have passed down to give these sharks their proper names and to make sure my protocol is right. So the way I can interact and approach with sharks is culturally respectful. So basically, I want to first of all create that database, give them their Hawaiian names, but then also start to do more research with those sharks of some of the Hawaiian knowledge of their movements and their behaviors of things like linking them to the willy-willy tree where when the willy willy tree here blooms, the sharks bite, saying that when the this certain tree is blooming that it's the reproductive season for sharks. Certain things that people have sort of realized over the years I wanna try and prove scientifically, but working respectfully with the Hawaiian culture. So that's sort of my first goal is trying to combine the two and, and do it right and do it respectively, says so There's surprisingly few Hawaiians in the field of research for marine sciences, which is pretty unfortunate. So I want to kind of establish myself as a researcher in Hawaii and really try and make a difference for the tiger sharks. And, you know, not just the tiger sharks, but all shark species and marine species here in Hawaii.
0: Beyond that, this amazing initiative that you have taken cataloging all these tiger sharks, and then you're going to pursue that even further in grad school. But beyond that, you are also in the process of starting a nonprofit. And this is also to do with giving sharks the respect they deserve and hoping to change people's perceptions of sharks to more of one of respect and positivity. Do you want to talk a little bit about your nonprofit that you're
1: developing? Yeah, sure. So uh my nonprofit will hopefully be called Malama Mano malama means to take care in hawaiian and mano is shark so essentially it's to take care of sharks and that's what i plan on doing and i plan on and using it as a platform for my research to start and to take initiative in and then combine that research with education conservation through legislation but ultimately like you said it's to just change people's perspectives Um, You know, right now, sharks are are scary to certain people, and it instills fear, and people say shark attack. I prefer the term shark bite, but uh, really just to educate people and to let people see their true side and change their perspective from fear to respect, and especially for how culturally important sharks are in Hawaii to really educate people, especially the locals, the residents, and even the visitors so that people don't have a reason to fear sharks and more people can begin to love them as, as I do and as the Hawaiians do.
0: That's so awesome. I wish you the best of luck starting that nonprofit and in going to grad school in the fall. I know that great things are going to come from both, and uh, you are already creating such positive change for our oceans and the sharks that live in it. For our listeners, I will be linking to Kaikea's Instagram and Vimeo accounts, so you guys can follow him on Instagram and Vimeo. Check out all of the amazing photos and videos that he is taking of not just tiger sharks and whale sharks, but just anything living in the ocean. He's got amazing photos of whales, manatees, fish, you name it. Check those out on Instagram and Vimeo, and I will post those links once I post this episode. So Kaikea, thank you so much for being on the show today and for all the positive change that you're creating for the ocean. Uh, Thank you, Allison. It It was fun to catch
1: up and help each other out since we both love the ocean and want to do something for
0: it. You just heard Kaikea Nakachi, biological oceanographer working to get sharks the respect they deserve in regards to their importance in Hawaiian culture and the overall health of the ocean. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at AllisonRandolph.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.